Well, as I said, we're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. We're in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll start reading at verse 25. But if you've been with us in our study on Sunday morning, that Jesus, he began his earthly ministry up there in the Galilee region. And great multitudes, thousands of people were coming at one time, you know, thousands of people on any given day in the Galilee region. So at the end of chapter 4, we see that Jesus, seeing the multitude, would go up on a mountain and he would have his disciples come to him and he would begin to teach his disciples. Now, the Sea of Galilee today, some of you who've gone with us in our trips to Israel, sits in a bowl and there's mountains all around the Sea of Galilee and he would go up on that mountain. It's very beautiful. Uh, we've gone to Israel during the time of the year where it was very green, wildflowers everywhere. It's kind of like what you're seeing here in Colorado. The wildflowers are starting to come up in July when you go up uh, in the high country. Very beautiful. And uh, flowers everywhere, the birds. And Jesus would go up and he would use you know, the, the landscape as an illustration as we're going to see. And in this part, as we're in the heart of the, the Sermon on the Mount here, remember that the multitudes are beginning to make their way up to Jesus. They're beginning to listen because the Sermon on the Mount, the longest teaching of Jesus in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, at the end of chapter 7, after he's done with the sermon, it says that the multitudes marveled as one having authority teaching, not like the scribes. And so as they're hearing these things, Jesus is, is talking about how we live for uh, him, how we, we are to be ones that have the right heart. And he said, I didn't come to diminish the law, I came to fulfill the law. And your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he began to tell the people how to do that. It's not just external, it's internal, your heart. What's the condition of your heart? Well, in this section that we're going to go over as we finish chapter 6 and then we'll move into chapter 7, he begins to tell them that they don't have to worry. Now, we are living in a time that perhaps most of us, if not all of us, that even over the last few months that we've had days, moments, even probably a season where you become anxious because of all the you know all the uncertainty you become uh, you know one that worries you you fret you can become fearful all these things can happen to us and I think today's word is going to be very important to us as we hear what Jesus says because this word was not only for his disciples in the multitude in that time it is for us in this day at this time. So let's pick it up at verse 25 in Matthew chapter 6. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and a body more than clothing? So that phrase, do not worry, will be repeated in verse 31 and 34. Jesus telling us not to worry about the essentials. Don't be anxious. Don't be fretting in what you, you know, wear, what you eat. Life is more than these things. And Jesus then begins to go on to tell us why we shouldn't worry. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Keep in mind that Peter, he writes in his epistle that we are to cast our cares upon him because he cares for you. 
And I want you to be reminded this morning, listen, that the Lord cares for you. You are valuable to the Lord. Your life is valuable to Him. And He's telling us here on the Sermon on the Mount that we can go to our Father because He does care for us. And He loves us and He wants to provide for us. And then when it comes to being anxious, when it comes to being fearful, Paul would write something very important in his letter to the Philippians. That whole letter he's writing from prison, not knowing what his future holds, if he's going to be put to death or he's going to be released. But we know that Paul writes that epistle. The whole theme is joy. And he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. So, you know, the Lord doesn't want us to go through life always being anxious and worrying and being fearful. But he wants us to pray about everything. He wants us to give thanks in everything. That's what he would write to the church of Thessalonica as well. And to know that the Lord desires to provide for us. Lord, give us this day our daily you know, bread. That's what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. That you can pray, Our Father. And we know that as we go through life, there are times and seasons, even I go through it, listen, that we can worry or we become anxious or those moments of uncertainty, and we even become fearful. And as I look at Scripture, even the great men of faith became fearful at times. We see that with Abraham. After he, and, and sometimes it happened after great spiritual victory. We know that Abraham, after he rescues his nephew Lot, and he uh, goes and takes 318 of his servants and goes and rescues Lot and those, those who were taken away captive by those five kings. You read that story there in the book of Genesis. Then he brings them back. He brings back the spoils. Great victory for Abraham. But then in the next chapter, it tells us that he was exceedingly afraid. We know that it was Joshua, that great warrior, that there were times where he fretted, he worried. He, he was like, Lord, why did you bring us out here into the, the promised land just to be defeated? Because they had a defeat at Ai right after a great victory that they had against Jericho. We know that uh, other men of faith, Elijah, after he calls down fire from heaven and slews the prophets of Baal, that he gets threatened by Jezebel. He runs for his life. He's full of fear and anxiety. And he runs to the mountain of God. And even Paul the Apostle became afraid. After the church there in Corinth just explodes and it's growing, that the Lord comes to Paul and says, Paul, don't be afraid. Why? Because he was afraid. And he was probably afraid that he was going to be persecuted like he was in Philippi, and Thessalonica, and in uh, that missionary journey that was very difficult. He says to the Corinthians, when I came to you, I came in much fear and trembling. But yet there was great fruit that happened in Corinth. And the Lord in chapter 18 of Acts says, Paul, you don't have to be afraid. For I am with you and no one's going to hurt you. I have many people in this city. And we need to understand this, that the Lord sees us and he cares for us. And when those times when we become anxious, his desire for us is to come to him and to know that he sees us. He wants to provide for us. 
and he says, look at the birds, you know, up there sitting, the birds would be flying around. God provides for them, he takes care of them. How much more he will take care of us? But I do want to take make a point that those birds that are flying around, just as we see birds here, and uh, if any of you are bird watchers, a bird doesn't sit in his nest and just with his mouth open expect a worm to drop down. That bird is searching, pursuing, is, is working. And as we are pursuing, as we're stepping out, as we are working, the Lord says that I'm going to provide for you and, and meet your needs and, and the needs that you have because I care for you and, and you are valuable to me. Please, especially you younger people, but for all of us, never forget that the Lord sees you as being valuable and so valuable that he sent his son to die on a cross for you, that you might be with him for all eternity. That's how valuable you are to him. So he says, I'm going to provide for you. And verse 27, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So the second illustration that Jesus gives concerns worrying about how long you will live. Worrying will not add to your life. The Greek word that Jesus uses here is talking about adding to life, not to height. But the scripture says that it's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. Um, when you will go home to be with the Lord. Moses in, in chapter 90 of Psalms writes, teach us the number of days. Listen, there is a certain number of days that you are going to live, that I'm going to live. And worrying about it won't change it. Jesus is saying God is in control of your life. He has established borders of when you will be born, how long you will live, and when you will die. Now, it doesn't mean that we can have the attitude, well, I'll just go out and do whatever I want. I'll live recklessly and carelessly and not take care of myself and do foolish things. No. That's not what Jesus is saying that we're to do. He's saying worrying does not make life longer. If anything, it can make your life shorter because it causes all kinds of stress. You can worry yourself to death. And there are some people that they've gone through that. They've gone through their life just completely you know, stressed out and worrying about it that it does affect their lives and, and their physical being as well as their mental and emotional. But as we continue in verse 28, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil or spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. It's interesting that Matthew in his gospel he mentions Solomon five times, more than the other gospel writers. And Solomon, we know, as we read the Old Testament, he was the king of Israel, the son of David, during its greatest prosperity and peace and, and wealth. And Solomon was the wealthiest man that ever lived. He wore golden sandals. And he would ride in a golden chariot. And ancient rabbinical writings tell us that Solomon would, would wear a, a white silk a robe and he had a golden sash that he would wear. And he would be in his golden chariot and he had 16 runners on each side, 32 in all. And they wore silk white uh, robes and they would take the gold and they would make dust out of the gold and they would put it on the runners and on Solomon so that when he was in his chariots and the runners were running next to him, 
that you know the splendor you know, the reflection of the gold in the sunlight it was absolutely incredible so Jesus here he says something he says don't worry about food don't worry about clothing Jesus telling his disciples look around life is more than food the body more than clothes look at the flowers of the field how God erased them clothes them Look at the birds, you know, how they are provided. They're not worrying, and Jesus is emphasizing to us here in this sermon that we are to trust in the Father, that He's going to provide for you. And to keep a, a, a joy in your heart is not by getting all caught up in, in worrying. Just expect that each and every day that the Lord is going to provide for you, for me. He promises to. Look at the fields, the lilies. They neither toil or spin. Don't get all hung up on the fads and the fashions and the styles, which, by the way, we know they all change so quickly. Jesus telling us, check out the flowers. See the glory of the flowers. How, uh, you know, they don't have a large wardrobe. Solomon couldn't rival in their splendor. And then in verse 30 we read, Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, and what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Really, I think what Jesus is inviting us to is a freedom from always worrying and, and worrying and being concerned and anxious about our provision, about material things. And Jesus is saying, God's going to take care of these things. And I know that it can be hard. It can be difficult. You know, it weighs on us. And it can be so easy for us to spend much of our lives worrying about these things. But here's the key in verse 33. Listen. Jesus says, but this is what you're to do. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We know that Paul the Apostle, when he wrote to the Colossian church, he said, keep your eyes, your heart on the things above, not on the things of this world. And we live life, and, and difficulty, and challenges, and needs come into our lives, but the Lord wants us to keep our eyes on him, to seek the kingdom of God. He says the Gentiles, that is the unbelievers, they seek the things of the world and the kingdom of the world. And so he's adding to what he's already taught on. Listen, you store up your treasures in heaven. Know that the things of this world are going to go away. Life is more than just, you know, the material things, the physical things of this world. But know that your Father is going to provide for you today and seek the kingdom of God because we belong to a kingdom that is eternal. And that helps me. That, Lord, that you see me, you care for me, you have provided the greatest need, and that is forgiveness of sin and salvation. And your love is set on me, and I can cast my cares on you, and I belong to the kingdom of God. I am your child. And, Lord, as I seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these other things will be added unto me. And I don't have to, to spend my life worrying every single day about my needs and necessities. And Lord, I can keep my heart on you because as I do, I pray about everything, give thanks in all things. 
that you're going to guard my heart and give me a peace that passes understanding. I may not understand how everything's going to play out and what's going to happen next week and next month and six months from now, but I do know this, that I have an eternal promise of being with you and that you're going to provide for me. And Lord, give me that peace that passes understanding. Help me to guard my heart in Christ Jesus. In verse 34, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient is the day in its own trouble. A lot of times, uh, for me, and I'm sure it is for you, that a lot of worrying or anxiousness is about the future. It's not always. There's things that we worry about today at times. But what is going to happen next week? Lord, what's going to happen in a month? What's going to happen to my job? What's going to happen to, you know, my business? What's going to happen? Uh, what's going to happen in six months? What's going to happen next year? And the Lord is saying, listen, it's enough. today's got enough worry. But you don't have to worry about tomorrow. You know, one of the things that I've learned is, there's, I'm like everybody else. Lord, what's going to happen? As I go through this, I think about, you know, those seasons I've gone through. What's going to happen to the church? You know, what's the church going to look like? How many people have we lost in, in the, you know, because of COVID? I, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. Lord, exactly how are you going to provide? But I do know this, that I have today. And the Lord has shown me and reiterated to me more and more that, Jeff, I want you to see me today. I want to give you a piece that passes understanding. I'm providing for you today, and then come back and see me tomorrow. Come back and see me tomorrow. And as I come back, he says, you know what? Because he doesn't tell us what's going to happen in a month, in six months, in a year. It's day by day, isn't it? Day by day, trusting in him. But listen, this is one of the things that he continues to teach me. Not only trusting in him, but resting in him. Isn't that the hard part? In resting in his promises and his love for me. Lord, I know that you are able, but are you willing to rest in his love that he's going to provide for us, that he cares for us, that he sees us and he hears me. He knows my needs, that I am his child. I'm going to trust in you, but Lord, more than that, I want to come to that place of resting in you come to that place of just having that peace in my heart and not full of anxiety and worry all the time. And he says, you keep coming back to me day after day, moment by moment. Seek first the kingdom of God. Set your eyes on the things above, not on the things of this world. And I know that can be hard. And all of us have, are going through that right now because of the uncertainty. We see all the things around us. But know this, that your Father cares for you. He loves you. And isn't it wonderful that we can go to our Father? He does want us to go to Him. He wants to provide our daily bread. Remember the prayer, Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. In the model prayer that He gave to us. To be able to come to Him and say, You're my Father. You care for me. You love me. And so as we continue into chapter 7, this is all part of the sermon here. We read in verse 1, that judge not that you not be that you be not judged. 
For with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. So verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. That can be a very popular quote, especially in our present day, right? Have you ever had anybody come to you and say, well, you're not supposed to judge me. The Bible says don't judge me, man. Why are you judging me? Well, it's important for us as we go through this that we understand what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying. He is not saying that we can't make any judgment calls. In other words, that we shouldn't have any discernment and uh, assess any situation. Uh, of course we do that. Jesus is not telling us or giving a command of a universal acceptance of any lifestyle or any teaching or anything like that. We who are parents, dads, you have to make judgments calls all the time, assessments when it comes to your kids. What they can do, what they're not to do, where they can go, what they can watch, all these things. All of us do that. And as Jesus is telling us, you know, don't judge, um, we need to understand as we go through this chapter, he's going to say, first of all, don't cast your pearls before swine. You shall know them by their fruit. Beware of false prophets. All of those take discernment and assessment and judgment on our part. But the word judge here means to, to judge, to decide, to condemn somebody. As we look at the context of what Jesus is saying, he's not saying that we can judge the works of somebody, but we are not to judge their hearts. We are not to judge in a sense of condemning them and tearing them down. Listen, we can know somebody very well, but we don't know exactly what's in their heart. And we don't know what's in a lot of people's hearts. We don't know what they've gone through. We don't know what they're struggling with. But the Lord does. And that's good news for you because He knows your heart. He knows your heart better than you do. It was Solomon when he was dedicating the first temple, he said in his prayer of dedication that, Lord, you're the one that knows the heart of man. And he's the only one that can fairly judge a person's heart. He's the one that's perfectly just, not me and not anybody else. And there can be people that they can judge and are critical in speaking to people's lives and they don't consider, as we're going to read on, the, the plank that's in their own eyes before they point out the, the splinter that's in somebody else's eye. And I've had people come and talk to me over the years of ministry and say, Pastor Jeff, you need to really lay down the law. You need to be, you know, this and that and be hard on the people. In other words, what they want me to do is beat the sheep rather than feed the sheep. As I feed the sheep and give you the word of God, God's going to take that word, put it into your heart, and convict you. You see, I make a lousy Holy Spirit. But as you have the word of God that does its work in your life and in your heart, the Holy Spirit is going to minister to you. And we are to be ones that we are to say, Lord, search me and try me. And I want to have a soft heart to examine my heart. And so the Holy Spirit, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But, but, you know, I'm not to bring intimidation and manipulation and all of this. 
And I think that most of us, if not all of us, have known somebody to where they love to point and condemn and tear people down. And, and you know, pointing the finger and always negative and cynical. Um, they seem to know the motives of people in their hearts. And we can go away feeling condemned, right? We feel very condemned and yuck. And so we need to understand Jesus does not prohibit judgment. We are not to judge for condemnation. We do judge for identification. In other words, Paul said in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, that we're to mark the person who causes division. We can judge false prophets, and we better be doing that in the day in which we're in, because there's a lot of false teaching out there. We can go to somebody who is sinning, and we can see their works, and we can say, hey, brother, hey, sister, you're going down this road of sin, and you're going down a road you don't want to go. And we can come to them and speak the truth in love, as Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, and we're motivated by love and the desire for them to be restored to the Lord and to do well in the Lord. Hey, this sin is going to hurt you. The Lord cares for you, and I care for you. Please consider what you're doing. Turn away from that thing. Because if you continue to reap seeds of the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. And that sin is going to hurt you and put you in bondage. But you know when somebody comes to you, don't you? You know when somebody comes to you and they come out of an attitude of love and care and compassion versus somebody who comes who just in a self-righteous kind of attitude. I like what a pastor friend of mine said at a pastor's conference. It always stuck with me, and I always try to remember it. If you want to point out somebody's dirty feet, be willing to get down and wash those feet. And we can point out the errors and sin in people's lives, but in a way that they sense that we care for them, we have the love of God for them, and that we desire for them to turn to Him so that they might do well in life. But we must be careful, as I've already said, of that self-righteous attitude and looking down at others and judging the motives of their hearts, being hypercritical of everything and everyone. Hey, I don't like you this, and I don't like that, and on and on and on. I'm superior spiritually. That's what comes out. That's a pharisaical attitude. Be careful, because Jesus says, with what judgment you judge, you are going to be judged. Listen, if I am, if you are, any of us are always cynical and condemning and you're not showing love or compassion or desiring for that person to truly repent. Repent just means to turn direction and go back to the Lord. It's really a wonderful word. But I think that that word repent has a bad connotation in a lot of people's minds because it is done with, you know, they picture a pastor, an old pastor like me, you know, pointing my finger at you, you know, and snarl on your face and all of this repent is you know hey repent turn to the Lord he loves you he wants the very best for you not in a condemning kind of way and if you are one that condemns and is judging people all the time to condemnation you're going to as you point the finger you're going to have three fingers pointing back at you Judges chapter 1 it's a story of of Judah and Simeon went against the Canaanites and captured the king of the Canaanites. 
And they captured this guy, the king, his name was Adonai Bezek. And they ended up chopping off his big toes and his thumbs, and you think, brutal. And why would they do that? Well, the king gave the answer in verse 7 of the chapter. He said, 70 kings with their kings and their thumbs and big toes cut off, used to gather scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. In other words, I've chopped off a lot of toes and thumbs in my life, and now my big toes and thumbs are being chopped off. So the lesson is this. If any of us are ones that we go around and we like to chop on people and cut on people constantly, unfairly, condemningly, you better watch out. Jesus said the way that you judge is the way that you will be judged. In verse 3, as he continues, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I find it interesting that in verse 3 here, that Jesus says, why do you look for? Why are you looking? The speck, the splinter. It can even mean sawdust in your brother's eye while you have a plank that's stuck in your eye. And it can be true that a person can feel very compelled to point out the sins of others. They become all condemning and judgmental, and yet they struggle with the same sin. Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 2, pointing out everybody else's back. And I have a bean in my own eye. He talks about the self-righteous person in Romans chapter 2, that the very sins that you're being all condemning about, you struggle with that. It was Nathan. We see this illustrated in the Old Testament. Nathan comes to David after David had sinned with Bathsheba. And, and David covered it up for nine months or longer. And we know that as Nathan, as, as he uh, comes to David, he says, David, we've got a problem in the kingdom. There's a very wealthy man that has many sheep, and he had a guest come. And instead of going out and taking one of his sheep to, to butcher and to feed his friend, he goes next door to his neighbor, who was very poor. And this neighbor had one sheep. It was a pet. It meant everything to his neighbor. The, the poor man you know, had this sheep that uh, ate with him even. So the rich man goes over and he takes the poor man's one and only sheep that meant so much to him, took it and killed it and fed it to his guests. And when David heard that, he was so angry and he said, that rich man, he must surely die. And Nathan looked him right in the eye and said, David, you're the man. You're the man. You're the one that took Uriah's wife. You are the one that committed adultery and murder. You're guilty. Jesus says, first take the plank out of your own eye. That is, don't have the self-righteous attitude that you go around pointing out everybody else's fault. First, in humility, you confess your own sin, mourn over your sin, and you seek God's righteousness. Self-righteousness will blind you, and it will distort your vision. The very essence of self-righteousness is to justify oneself, to condemn others. And again, Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't help that brother who has a splinter in his eye. He's saying make sure that you recognize the beam in your own eye first, 
and then you can deal or point out the speck in the brother out of love and concern. David wrote Psalm 51 right after, you know, his sin with Bathsheba. And when he writes about his sin, he writes in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your way. First it is, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Then I will teach transgressors your way. Deal with my own heart first, Lord. And then I can go and minister to others. And I can talk with others. Because my heart is right with you, Lord. Because I've allowed you to examine my heart. And then in verse 6, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you to pieces. I think what Jesus is saying in this, as we read it, it sounds kind of harsh, but he's saying you need to be discerning. He's not saying that we can't, you know, minister or we can't give the gospel to unbelievers. Of course we are to do that. But be discerning because there are those who are very hostile to the gospel. There are those who will take the gospel and trample it on their feet. They'll come against you. They'll go after you. They'll cause harm to you. Just be discerning. And then as we finish, verse 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts, good things to those who ask Him? So in the Greek here, it's kind of interesting. Jesus is saying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. As you keep asking, he, it will be given to you. As you keep seeking, you will find. Jesus illustrating this continual action in, in prayer in verses 9 through 11. Jesus, again, making reference to the father-child relationship which is vital to our prayer life. He is our Father. Give us this day our daily bread as you pray our Father. And we can come to Him because we have the spirit of adoption where we can cry out, Abba, Father. Literally, it means Papa. You and I as believers in Christ are the only ones that can say that. And as we come to Him, He cares for us just as on this Father's Day, you guys that are fathers, you know you want your children to come to you, right? I raised four kids, and I wanted them to come to me. They had needs, they had wants, and as they were growing up, and, and questions, and uh, I didn't say, get away from me, scram, you're bugging me. But I wanted to hear them, talk with them, pray with them. Even as they're all adults now, I still want to hear from them. I'm still their dad. I still want to help them and guide them and we want to provide for our children. We want the very best for them, right? How much more our Heavenly Father does for us? You see, He says, keep asking, keep knocking, keep praying. Your Father knows what you have need of. You're not going to get a stone when you ask for bread. Now there are those who have come along and they've manipulated these verses to say, just name it and claim it. Nab it and grab it, you know, if you just have enough faith, you know, and you speak in power and you just ask for that. 
that thing, that new house, that new boat, whatever, uh, plant that seed faith and you, you'll become wealthy and all this. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because let me ask you something. Those of you who are dads, those of you who are parents, did you give everything that your child asked for? So your child comes along and asks for cookies and candy before dinner. Did you give them cookies and candy? No. And maybe they threw a fit and maybe they didn't like it and they thought the cookie and candy would be good for them. But you knew that it wouldn't be. And as they grow older, they come to understand, that was foolish for me to do that. And as we grow in the Lord, I know that the things that I've asked for in my life, that I can look back and say, thank you, Lord, that you did not give me that at that time because it wasn't good for me. I thought it, maybe it was. And, you know, I, I threw a, a spiritual fit myself. Why, Lord, and why am I having to wait? And the Lord says, I want the very best for you. And he promises in the scripture that he will not withhold anything that is good for us. And if he isn't giving you something right now, it means it's not good for you, at least at this time. And a heavenly father that cares for us so much, do you realize when we pray, he's going to answer? People say, he didn't answer my prayer. He answers. Sometimes that answer is no. And I've learned that no is a very wonderful answer. Because I've looked back and I have seen that if I would have got that, or it wasn't the best the Lord had for me, or it wasn't the right time. And he will say, no, I don't want you to have this because maybe he's got something better. Maybe it would be a stone and not bread. Maybe he's saying it's not the right time. Or this isn't just going to be good for you. He's not going to withhold anything that is good for you. In eternity's perspective, listen. If you've been praying about something and you haven't received it, it's because it's not good for you right now or he's telling you to wait or he's got something better but what is the lesson for today he will provide for you because he loves you and he wants the very best for you lord not my will but your will be done you're my heavenly father i'm casting all my cares here's my desires here's what's on my heart here's even the things that i want but lord i just trust you because you are a good, good Father. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these lessons. I thank you for the shade right now. And um, because we've gone a little bit longer than we normally do. But these are very important lessons for us as we apply it in our hearts in the day in which we are in. That we have a Father that cares for us. And we can cast our cares on you. And you love us. So I thank you for that. And I do pray, Lord that we would remember that you provided the very best for us. And that is forgiveness of sin through your son, Jesus Christ. So I pray right now, if you're here, listen, the greatest need that you have, the greatest need that any man or any woman has is to be forgiven of sin. Have you come to Jesus and asked for forgiveness? Because that's why he came. He loves you so much. You are so valuable to him that he went to a cross and died for your sins because the Bible says this, the wages of sin is death and all of us have sinned. But we've been given hope through Jesus Christ who went to a cross and all of our sins were placed on him and then he cried out, it is finished. I've made atonement for your sins. He was put into a grave and he rose again and he conquered sin and death. He validated that he's the son of God 
There is no other salvation. He is the way. He's not a way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he proved who he was by rising from the grave. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And he's saying to anyone, if you're not right with God, if you've never come to Jesus, repent and turn to him and say, Jesus, sit upon the throne of my heart and my life as my personal Lord and Savior. He's saying, come. He loves you. I don't care what you've done. He died for all of your sins. And please don't think that you can be righteous enough to make it into heaven because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Your salvation, Jesus. So you can pray right where you are because today's the day of salvation. Jesus, I come and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Forgive me. I believe you died on the cross, that you're the Son of God, and I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to walk with you, know you. I thank you for this new beginning. I, I thank you for bringing me into the kingdom of God, and now I'm your child. Lord, thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. And listen, if you prayed that prayer, come up on the platform here on the deck. Tell me you made that decision. If you're at home listening live stream or later on the radio, call us at the church, and we'd love to talk with you and follow through with you. And But for all of us, may we just rest in your love and the promises of your provision. Bless all the dads that are here. Lord, bless our day and our week coming up. We look forward to meeting again next week when we finish the Sermon on the Mount. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God is good, isn't he? All right, guys. Let's stand. Dads, got some chocolate for you. Have a great day. Have a great Father's Day.